Welcome to Just Over the Fence <laughs> slash marriage counseling session. <laughs> Remember that time when we thought about being marriage counselors? Yes. Yeah, that was fun. That was bold. We got over it. <laughs> <laughs> after, after much deliberation. Yeah. Realized maybe not. Yeah, maybe not yet. Welcome to the, we're here at the world headquarters of the Just Over the Fence podcast. Woohoo! Awaiting the arrival of Christine Maston, our I guest today. I am so sorry to cut you off. Mm-hmm. I am so excited about today. I was just thinking about when we first met them. We were, uh, just had moved to Colorado, just had a little baby Brie, and honestly, she had had surgery, finances were tight. We it was were, emergency surgery at three months old. Yeah, yeah. we we were going through some tight financial times, and Chuck was recommended to us as a financial counselor. That's how I first met him, anyway. And I think even prior to that, when we had the surgery, we still have, I have the artwork in the bag from their older two children, Wes and Gabby, that they drew as an encouragement and a prayer and delivered us a meal to the door. They're just one of those families that it's not all about them. They see things around them and they give their talent, time, and mm-hmm. energies to serve others. Mm-hmm. They really do. Yeah. And they have busy lives and they still focus on serving the world around them. Chuck and Christine are both attorneys. Yes. He's a uh, tax accountant. Tax and, and estate attorney. And she's an immigration attorney. Yes. And we're going to welcome her here in just a moment. But I almost forgot, Harry. What? We have a new segment here on Just Over the Fence. Thank (laughs) you to our friend Chris Thomas. Are you ready? (gasps) Okay, I'm strapping in. Let's do this. And now, it's time for Hey, Harry! Hey, Harry! That's me. Hey, Harry, have you ever ridden a unicycle? (laughs) The answer to that is no, I have not. I don't think you want to see me on a unicycle. <laughs> I do. I used to ride motorcycles. Yes, you a did. lot. You grew I, up. Yeah. Yeah. I had my own. I bought my own motorcycle and it wasn't a unicycle. Mm-hmm. Chris and crew. Um, it was called a champ, a Yamaha champ. And I saved up my money and my dad did the other half. He said, if you save up so much, I'll cover the other half. Mm -hmm. And there you have it. So Google a champ motorcycle. Mm -hmm. It's a teeny tiny, (laughs) but I rode it everywhere. It was kind of pre moped. Maybe it was right after moped were the thing, but um, did you say it was a Yamaha? It was a Yamaha, and my best friend Lisa and I would uh, sneak it out because I wasn't supposed to drive it unless my parents were home. <laughs> well, so I'm, sure we would... they, I'm sure they couldn't hear you taking off. <laughs> no, they were gone oh, during okay. the day, during the yeah. summer, and so we would sneak it out and and drive it to softball practice. <laughs> we thought we were just all that. And one day we had a crash, and mm. so we broke the mirror, and I had to confess oh, that we had no. been sneaking it out. But wow, Harry. Yeah, it was yellow. I can see it very clearly in my mind. It's a big deal when you get your first Absolutely. motorcycle to all those out there that are my fellow motorcycle riders. Mm-hmm. Chris, I'm, once again, wow. And he's one of those voices when you hear him, you hear him on this one being fun, but 
it's that voice that you hear on the radio all the time or on the advertisements on television or podcasts or um, whatever you might be listening to. Spotify. I'm killing time until Matt finds this. So what'd you have for breakfast, Matt? Here's the website, okay. ctaudioproductions.com. Yeah, amazing. Seriously. Um, if you haven't, if you don't know him and you haven't heard him, check it out. And if you have an audio need, do that too. Do whatever you do with Chris. <laughs> I don't know For all you of your do. audio needs. <laughs> there you go. I yeah. love it. Thank you, yeah. Chris. Well, uh, Christine will be arriving here. Wiesner Ranch, we like to call it. Yeah. Sorry, did I cut you off again? No, it's okay, Harry. It's okay. <laughs> Once again, we did not end up going into the marriage counseling business. <laughs> I think I would have been great. <laughs> Moving right along. Christine Mastin on today's Just Over the Fence. Here we go. Shortly after we met, Chuck was a financial counselor to people who could use that help. We were one of those couples. And I think in, in the conversation, I said, you know what? I need to buy a bike. And you know what Chuck yeah. did? Yeah. He gave me his bike. He did. His mountain bike. It was, yeah. we still have it. That's my guy. Mm-hmm. That's just who he is. That's your guy. He's a, he works very hard, but he also remembers how he grew up and he understands how blessed he is. And for him to... Just say, hey, I've got an extra one of those. Or, hey, you can have mine. I don't write it. I mean, that's just so natural for him. And it comes from such a sweet place. It's an amazing guy. Yeah. Just as you remember the bike, of course, I have a list of things that I remember uh, that he has done. But I would say our adoption took it to another level Mm. in terms of um, not just giving physically what we have, or welcoming another little person to partake in the physical blessings that we have, but the emotional and spiritual generosity of my husband. Um, that was the day I realized it truly was off the charts. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a lot to teach me about faith and generosity and sacrifice and love. So I get very emotional because he's mm. just the greatest guy in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't yeah. awesome? So the, we're talking about the Mastin family of five. And um, your oldest is Gabby. Then we have Wes. Correct. Then we have Fiki. Yes. Yeah. So our eldest is now a sophomore in college. And our son is a junior in high school. Uh, who just got his driver's license. So that's a whole new world Yikes. for him. And then Fiki is our little one, and she's in second grade. So she uh, is adopted from Ethiopia. Um, I like to tease that she's really the only child we actually planned. <laughs> 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 and boy, we did. It was a three-year yeah. adoption process. So we uh, learned how to wait And in our culture, waiting is not something we learn, I think, as children or as young adults or as adults. Uh, We want our coffee at that window, and we want it fast. Uh, We expect A plus B to equal C very quickly and very logically. And adoption taught me to wait. And it taught me to wait on God. It taught me to be patient with other people. It taught me to be patient with myself. 
So we uh, certainly grew a lot in that process. And this year um, marks the sixth year that Fiki has been home with us. Mm. And it's been an incredible journey. So the way this typically works, and again, nothing is typical in adoption, is that you receive your court date in Ethiopia, um, and then you get on a plane and fly out there, knowing that the court is ready to see you and to wrap up this process. Um, However, it was very heavy on our hearts that it was time for me to go and for my older children to go, and we did not have a court date, and we did not know when we were coming back. We did not know when Chuck was going to show up. We knew nothing. We went Um, in faith, knowing, you know, God has the timeline. God has this all set. We just need to walk through this. So the first time I entered Ethiopia was with my older two children on my own. Uh, But since then, until 2020, we had been back every single year and have spent considerable amount of time in in East Africa. So how did the connection to Fiki take place? How did you... How did you find each other? So when we began this adoption journey, we thought it would be very logical for us to adopt from Latin America because my mother's from Chile. I speak fluent Spanish. I'm a native Spanish speaker. I grew up in that culture. And to us, that seemed logical. Uh, The way it ended up, however, is that each country in the world can uh, determine its own adoption qualifications. And we were too old to adopt from most Latin American countries. Hmm. I would like to say mature. We were too mature. Come on. <laughs> I would so. We were too wise. Maturity, I don't know. But. Right? <laughs> uh, so we just opened ourselves up to wherever. And Ethiopia ended up being the perfect program. And I now see why. Because it was exactly where we needed to be. And it's where our daughter was. So one of the side notes to this is, what do you do for a living, Christine? Oh, well, I've been an immigration attorney for the last 22 years. Side note, just bought a coffee farm in Hulualoa, Hawaii, <laughs> and now I'm a coffee farmer. We'll get to that We in do a have minute. questions that about that. That is yeah. so fun. I love that. But our youngest daughter, who also knows you and, and your family, wanted to know she had a great question she said mom ask her how mm-hmm. did she get in how did she choose to be an immigration attorney and why why immigration it shows me in many respects when i went to law school i did want to be an attorney that uh, affected people's lives i didn't want to be a paper pusher in the basement of some law firm for the rest of my life i wanted a lot of personal interaction with clients i wanted compelling cases to work on that felt rewarding. However, during law school, I wanted to shift gears. Uh, Much of the respect that one receives in law school, or potential respect, I guess, it's just such a weird culture. Law school's really a crazy place, is to be a corporate litigator. I mean, that's sort of what most kids wanted to be. And it's a high-powered, high-paying type thing. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that's what I'm supposed to be. So I did, that's what I pursued. Um, However, couldn't find a job first summer after law school. And CU uh, Boulder Law School? Yes, went to CU Boulder. Uh, Couldn't find a job. Was going to end up taking just a regular part-time retail type job. 
didn't want to be an immigration attorney. A lot of people had said, because of your language, because of your cultural background, because of your international travel, you should think about being an immigration attorney. But that didn't fit the box I really wanted to be in, which I thought held respect, money, title, whatever. And I was chasing that in law school, as most kids were. When I couldn't find a job my first summer, um, I had been working out in a swim program in Boulder. And a woman was sharing my lane, and we were talking. Turns out she's an immigration attorney, and she offered me a clerk job. And I just had to laugh. I just thought, oh, my goodness, here we go. (laughs) And loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was absolutely what I was supposed to do. And I pursued it from there. How did you know that? How, I mean, what did you love about it? How did you know it was what you were supposed to do? There are a lot of Spanish speakers, obviously, that are immigrants to this country. And I met client after client that not only had legal issues, but had a difficult time navigating and understanding what their issues were because of the language barrier. And so the fact that I could deliver legal assistance in Spanish completely and be able to at least open that door for clients, for them to be able to communicate and not worry about, is the interpreter saying the right thing? How good is our interpreter? Um, and just cut out the middleman and be able to have that relationship. Uh, it was thrilling for me to help them in that way. I, I grew up in that community. My mom was in English as a second language teacher in a farm labor camp in California. And my dad built low-income housing for farm workers. So this was the community that I had really grown up in. And so for me, it felt like I belonged. And it felt very natural to be able to provide those services in Spanish. What led you to the adoption gateway? Um, Well, I had been counsel, and I still am counsel, to a ministry called His Little Feet International Children's Choir. And they're based up in Windsor. They were partnering with an organization at the time called Go Be Love, which is a missions organization. And because they were partners to His Little Feet, I thought, I'm going to check these folks out and we're just going to go. And my daughter was, my eldest daughter was 10 at the time. And I took her to Costa Rica on a missions trip with Go Be Love. And it was life changing for her, for sure. And it was an amazing experience. And we served in several orphanages in Costa Rica. And I had never been in an orphanage in my entire life. It was very difficult. And there were very many difficult circumstances to discuss with my eldest, with Gabby. And I saw just the need. And I thought these kids deserve families. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, But for me... That's, I felt, I felt that that's when God said, yeah, how about yours? Mm. And that's not the calling for everyone. I mean, I have so many friends and there are so many hundreds of thousands of people um, that are so passionate about orphan care uh, here, both in the United States, foster care and internationally. And, but I think it is a, a very specific call to adopt, but I really felt like God was saying, you know, how about your family? How about your table? And I returned to the United States with that news. (laughs) My husband sort of didn't know what to do with it. And he said, you know, we really need to pray about this for a long time because this is huge. And we did. And I know he did. And um, several months later, he said, you know, I think I think you're right. I think this is exactly 
where we need to go next. And so that was the beginning. Right. I think a calling is a great way to say that and a passionate calling because adoption itself, uh, whether it's international adoption or, or local adoption or distress adoption or what they call sky adoption in the middle of the night when someone wasn't planning on it and, and they have the people they call, um, talk a little bit more about that. It's not all the beautiful pictures and celebrations. It, it is, um, stitching together this deeper beauty in a family, right? Through the good, the bad, the, the, um, flexing of the different family members, um, as they learn to love each other and grow. It it is a huge undertaking as a parent. It's parenting is what it is. And so when you think about adoption, it's it's not uh, just the the international or even domestic adoption process and that whole thing, which is a huge piece. And that in itself is a journey, but you are parenting another child. You've got another baby now. (laughs) And so you do have the dynamic of your family growing from four to five. You have the dynamic of the age difference now between your kids. You're sharing your time yet another way. But there are complexities that come with adoption. And a lot of this has been a learning process for us in terms of um, how to how to answer her questions, um, which we've been very open with her from the beginning, and how to celebrate her uh, and her differences from us, not only physically, but personality-wise and her interests. And just as you would want to celebrate the uniqueness of your biological children, they're not all the same, right? So it's, it's about being able to do that within the context of adoption. And being able to celebrate who she is and her beautiful Ethiopianness and her uh, beautiful connection to Africa and to all of the friends and uh, dear people that we have there. So it's she bridges that for herself, but also for us. And a lot of people look at adoption as a one-way generosity that you're bringing this child into your home. But I'll tell you, the generosity of God to us in bringing her to us is so much more than what we could have mustered um, in adopting her because a lot of folks think, you know, yeah, these children need parents, but what God didn't tell me that day was that I needed her. We needed her and she completes us and she completes our family in a way that is, it's indescribable, but I do know now, obviously six years in, this was exactly what our family needed. And this is exactly what we yearned for, even when we didn't even know that we yearned for it or needed it. I remember something you taught me is you were extremely tired because she was still a little. And it had been a while since you had had a little in the house. And we tend to forget that as parents. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> and you called me one morning and you said, I've got it. I tithed sleep last night. I gave it up. Until we get through this period, I have set aside the need for sleep. Yes. And, and it, she, Fiki had some medical issues when she came home, which prevented her from sleeping through the night. 
um, even at, you know, 16, 17 months, we were, we were not getting more than a couple of hours sleep, but it was, it was a medical issue and we had surgery scheduled. So I knew that at some point we were, we were going to be okay, but the sleep exhaustion, especially coming off of a six week trip in Ethiopia was tremendous. But I felt instead of being upset that I wasn't sleeping or crabby or feeling entitled to sleep, which especially for new moms, that's a really hard transition. (laughs) Once I was able to say, you know what, God, I'm just going to give that to you. I'm putting this in the donation bucket. I'm going to give you my sleep knowing that that's a sacrifice that I am now consciously giving. And so for me not to go to bed at night expecting to sleep actually made those first few months a lot better than I think they would have. But it had to be a complete change of heart and a complete change of mind for me because I love sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. And, you know, with with two other kids in the house in addition and the law practice and the, it's like, goodness, I need to sleep. Yeah. I need to sleep. I I hear you. Is there a moment where you knew Fiki is our daughter? Do you remember a moment? Yes. Yes, I do. And it's when they sent us her picture. That was it. I knew it. Actually, I knew when they called us, even before they gave us the picture. When we got that phone call, I just knew. I I knew this was our little girl. And the waiting then turned into, went to a different level because now I wasn't waiting on a phone call. I'm waiting to go get my little girl. So describe meeting her finally. So we arrived in Ethiopia and immediately got into a, which is a huge flight, and got into a van driven by a man who later became just a dear, dear friend, still is a dear friend of ours. We being the entire family. No, I was there with just my kiddos at first because we didn't have a court date. And so dad, Chuck's thinking, I've got to hold down the fort. I mean, we can't all be floating around East Africa together. (laughs) So he was here and I'm in Africa with two kids. Anyway, very hot, very dusty, very bumpy, very windy four-hour drive uh, to Awasa, Ethiopia, which is where she was born. And we checked into the hotel, and the driver said, you know, should we head on over? And we were just so, so exhausted. I said, yes, we're not, I mean, we've waited three-plus three years. We're going right now. And got in the car, drove to the orphanage, and I was taken aback by, you know, just the conditions. I, I'd spent some time, you know, a lot of time actually in rural Mexico and other places, but I had never been to uh, rural East Africa, which is, a, I believe, a different, much different place. Uh, a lot of similarities, but still very different. And to know that my daughter was there was was very impactful. But we went into the orphanage, beautiful people that run it, beautiful, wonderful nannies. And the director, uh, who has since become a good friend of ours as well, said to me, are you ready to meet your daughter? And I think in that moment, I just, it was an out-of-body experience. And he led me into this room, and there were about six cribs all lined up against the wall. And this little set of hands grabbed the side of the crib and just pulled herself up a little bit and peeked out and oh my goodness it was it was amazing it was amazing and she's looking at me with wonder like who are these people (laughs) 
And it took a little while, but she finally went into my arms. And it's one of, I had what I would consider a first time parent experience where, for example, you're in the hospital and they say, here's your newborn, it's time to check out. And you're thinking, I'm really taking this home. Like <laughs> this person is coming home with me, right? <laughs> that, that first anxiety. I felt that because I thought, what? That, I, wow, we're, we're taking a baby home. <laughs> so it was, it was thrilling. It was, but peaceful at the same time. Like, oh, we did it. We're here. I'm holding her. Um, little did we know it would be another six weeks before we would come home. But at that point, we were happy. Now, Chuck had not yet met his daughter. And that's the interesting piece of this as well, because... What we didn't know was that the court opened up a court date very quickly. And had we not been in Ethiopia, we would not have been able to take that court date. But Chuck couldn't get there in time. And I had to ask him, I said, baby, uh, I have his power of attorney. We had all of the documentation done. I said, but you are now telling me that I'm going to court and I'm going to adopt this baby for both of us. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I'm like, Charlie, you've never met her. You've only seen her on FaceTime. Are, like, really? We're doing this? I'm doing this all by myself. And he's like, yeah, we're doing this, and we're not going to wait. We don't know how long another court date. We don't know when another court date could become available. So let's do this. So there I went. Went to court with my oldest two kiddos, and and that was that. Talk about trust and faith and and making the next courageous step, right? Instead of pausing and going, wait, do we do we contemplate this? Do we right. is there another step in the middle? No. This is our daughter. Yeah, and this I think this is our baby. And and Chuck had tremendous trust in God, obviously, and still does. But I in reflection, I realize the amount of trust that he had in me. Um, We had never been to East Africa. I had never had a yellow fever vaccine, and neither had my other children. And then we were on malaria meds, and then we did the, I mean, and for him to say, Christine, go ahead. Take them both. I don't know when you're coming back. (laughs) Right? We don't know how this is going to go. I'm launching you out. On behalf of our family, go. And wow. I mean, in retrospect, I I think about that a lot. So... You're in Ethiopia. You don't arrive alone. You arrive with two other children. My eldest two were much younger at that time. And I don't think they fully understood what it would be to have a baby in the house. I'm not sure how many siblings (laughs) might relate to that. But they were very generous and very helpful and loved their little sister from day one. And they wanted to feed her and play with her and take care of her and... I think about how generous they were with being willing to share me with somebody else. Absolutely. And to understand that she would need things a little differently than perhaps they did. That she would uh, relate in a new way to them. There's just a lot that goes on in terms of the family dynamics. But our eldest kids are amazing people. Uh, And that's not through our efforts. That's probably in spite of us, not because of us, right? That's what we always Uh, do. They're just amazing people. It's just a tall order. I mean, if I put myself in their shoes, 
Had my mother told me and my father told me we're adopting a child we've never met from a place we've never been. We're going. We don't know when we're coming back. You have to get inoculated against all these crazy infections and diseases before we go. (laughs) Forget your friends this summer and your activities. Right. We're just going to trust God and go do this. I mean, I would have looked at my parents like, no way. No way. And God blessed us with two kids that were like, okay, let's do this. You know, it's just, (laughs) we, we were so blessed by that. And I think that's a great segue to immigration attorney, now coffee farm owner in (laughs) Hawaii. What? How do we get there? I'm not sure, honestly. No, but um, we, about 11 years ago, we went to a Cancer League fundraiser with some friends of ours and enjoyed the wine on the table. And unfortunately, along with the wine, they also had a paddle. And they were auctioning off a trip to Costa Rica. And Chuck and I thought, how fun, right? With our kiddos, they're now old enough. We can go to Costa Rica, do zip lining. This will be great. So there we are with the paddle. Well, we win the trip. <laughs> a few days later, we realize, and we're told for the first time, that there's a million blackout dates. Like we couldn't go over summer. We couldn't go over Christmas. Couldn't go over Thanksgiving. So all of the school breaks were essentially blackout dates. And it became somewhat of the unusable vacation for us. And Chuck is a tax attorney. Correct. So yeah. So you've got that, those months that are blacked out for Exactly. You so yeah. tax season wasn't going to work for us either. So we called the Cancer League and we said, hey, we're keep our donation, but we're going to return this vacation to you guys because totally unusable for us. And they felt very bad. And they said, well, we'll try and find something else that might work better for your family. Okay. But two weeks later, we got a phone call that they had found us a one week vacation on the big island of Hawaii. And we had only been there very briefly on a cruise together and had not really spent time in Hawaii. So we thought, hey, let's do this. So in 2010, we went to Hawaii with the kids and loved it, of course. Who doesn't love Hawaii? Right. Well, we turned it into an annual thing. Um, So we have gone now. This will be our 10th Christmas and New Year's in Hawaii. And we always go back to the Big Island. We have our traditions there of where we eat dinner before church and the shave ice after church and what we do on Christmas Day. And so all of those memories now are in Hawaii. Um, In 2012, I remember this so vividly, we decided to do a coffee farm tour near Kona. And for those of you unfamiliar with the Kona Coffee Belt, it's about 20 miles long and about two to two and a half miles wide. And it's this strip of land that is perfect for growing coffee. Coffee is a very finicky plant. It's got to be perfect. It's got to have the right amount of the sun, right amount of rain, right kind of soil, right amount of you know f- nutrients in the soil for it to grow. And this is a little strip, the only little strip in America that can grow coffee. Fabulous. And they have these tours and coffee tastings you can go to um, in Kona. So we decided to do that with the kids. And so we ground our own coffee. We roasted our coffee. We did all the the fun activities they had. We walked through the orchards or the plantation and it had a beautiful ocean view. They all do. And I remember looking at my husband and I said, on what day do we just say, screw it. And we come and do this 
Like, what if we just bought a coffee farm on the Big Island? (laughs) (laughs) So my husband rolls his eyes because I'm full of these crazy ideas. I really am on any given day. Like, it's all exciting to me. I'd love to try everything. I wish I could live this life 10 more times because there's so much out there to do and experience. So he's used to this daydreaming that I do. And he snickered and laughed, and that was kind of the end of it. Um, Over the years, we've talked about stage three. What do we do when our middle child goes off to college and it's just the three of us with Fiki? And (sighs) what's this stage three going to look like? And we always hoped and prayed that it would be the Big Island of Hawaii, that that would be our stage act three. Two years ago, we were there and decided to snoop around at some open houses because we're like that. Like, we have no interest in buying. We just want to see what's inside other people's houses. (laughs) (laughs) Creepy, I know. Um, So it was an open house in Kona, and we stopped by. Well, turns out the realtor was amazing, great guy. And he said to me, I know you're not interested in buying now, but let me put you on my listserv. So tell me what the minimums are that you're looking for in terms of how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, blah, 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 what your budget is. And I'll plug you into the computer and you'll just get these automated listings as they come up. So for the last two years, periodically, I will a listing will come into my inbox and I take a look at it. And I, of all the listings over the last two years that I've received from him, I've only maybe sent five or six to my husband. And mostly it, it's not to say, let's buy this house. It's for him to see Okay, if we live in South Kona and we're in this area, this is what we can get. If we want land or we want this or we want, you know, whatever, this is this is what it looks like. These are homes that are representative of what the market looks like right now in Kona. This listing came up and I laughed when I got it. I just thought, oh my golly, would this be a kick in the pants or what? And I sent it to Chuck without an intent of buying it. I mean, this was just yet another listing over the last couple of years. But I thought, look at how interesting this property is. It has a coffee farm. The house is cool. Hey, this is something to to think about, you know, as we move into Act 3. My husband responds with, call the realtor, have him go look at it. And you're like, what? And I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And so the realtor went out there, did a FaceTime with us, showed us the property. And Chuck said, you know, this would be, this would be phenomenal. And this is not the timing, right? We wanted to wait for the middle kid to go to college and have all this other stuff in place. He's just like, I just feel like this is our house. And this is what we're, we're, this is our act three let's let's do this so we did it's very rarely the timing we plan right correct right so it's a house coffee farm i mean how many how many acres it's two and a half acres yeah about 900 coffee trees and approximately 10,000 pounds of coffee fruit and they're called cherries Uh, about 10,000 pounds is the yield or the expected yield on the property right now so, so you'll live there and there's... Kind of, yeah. Well, ev- eventually. Back and forth. There will be a lot of back and forth, yeah. yes. But our family is coming out. I, I, I'm going out ahead of the family yet again uh, with our youngest because so, we're homeschooling anyway. So. so by the time we're all listening to this, you will have been there. 
Yes. For the first time. Yes. Yeah. I'll and send so you a picture. Might, yeah. I own a tractor. Okay. <laughs> we want to see that. that. Let's yeah. do that. Okay. In all fairness, I've never mowed a lawn. When I was growing up, my parents did not give me that chore. My okay. brother did that chore. Okay. I get that. I've never mowed a lawn. I've never ridden a tractor. <laughs> I've never applied fertilizer to anything. Well, I've never... I just, yeah, this is going to be a learning curve. But we have a farm manager, God bless him. And so he's. And what's his name? Keeping everything alive. His name's Jaime. Jaime. And he's from Puebla, Mexico. So God he's, bless you, Jaime. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm reading a lot of articles. And I will tell you what. I have a whole new respect for farmers in around the world. The amount of thought and care and intentionality required to grow something is really incredible you cannot just put a seedling in the ground and walk away and be a farmer I mean I am learning so much about fertilizer combinations and when to prune and there's many different pruning methods and the pros and cons of each and how to increase the yield without increasing law I mean just it goes on and on and on it's actually a very sophisticated science and so now when I'm in my kitchen and I'm dicing a tomato I'm thinking to myself there is a farmer that has thought about this tomato planned for this tomato cared for this tomato and it is now in my kitchen it's it's a tremendous process I'm also drawn to this thought because uh well Teresa and I both grew up in farming communities in Iowa around guys who grew corn hogs and cattle for a living and they knew that rhythm and they knew the wisdom in there and sometimes I miss that uh, living in the big city. It's going to be very healthy to surrender to the seasons and to know that tending this farm and caring for this farm, there will be an there will be a production right for next year. But learning through that process of how to just do that. So now you own a coffee farm, sight unseen. Yes, ma'am. You need a name. Oh, we named it. (laughs) We named it. So in Ethiopia, which is the birthplace of coffee, uh, it was actually discovered in coffee. It grows wild in Ethiopia, many different areas of Ethiopia. And they discovered how to pick it and roast it. And coffee is one of the most central pieces of Ethiopian culture. You drink it all day long with everyone. And it's a very social event. So there's no real to-go cups. Um, Even if you get coffee to your car from the coffee shop, it comes in a real cup with a real saucer and you're expected to sit there and enjoy it with whoever you're with. It's not instant satisfied, instant gratification kind of coffee. And it's a social event and uh, which is great, except that it's a social event at everyone's home. So if I visit two or three people in Ethiopia in one day, I will have had probably six different, nine different flights of coffee and it's (laughs) Woo. Woo. It's a little More much. Energy. But kids drink it in Ethiopia. It's it's a very culturally central uh, drink. And so when we told our little one that we were buying a coffee barm, she says, Mommy, you mean we're going to have Buna? And Buna is the Amharic word for coffee uh, in Ethiopia. And Beautiful. I looked at her and I thought, you've just named our company. So it's called yes. the Buna Coffee Company. And the Buna Coffee Farm, and we are now an LLC existing in the state of Hawaii. So if people listening want to get your coffee, 
can they get it and have it shipped? Yes. So this year, because we haven't been there yet, all of our cherries are being sold to another label. So this happens quite a bit. Uh, there, are, there are some what we would call non-resident farmers, which are people that own homes in the Hawaii coffee or the Kona coffee belt, but they're not actually living there enough to roast and to their label and all of that. And so they sell their cherries to another produce, another label, another farm on the island. And so that's what we have done for 2020 because I'm not there to roast it yet. But I'm hoping in 2021 at the next harvest next fall, uh, we will be in a position, we will have our label prepared and all of that and our online shipping, all of that ready to go. So yes, but we have a website. It's called Buna Coffee, B-U-N-A, BunaCoffeeKona.com. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to watch all of my farm fails, they will be posted to Instagram. (laughs) And they may or may not involve a tractor. (laughs) I'm there. Or a lawnmower. (laughs) What? (laughs) I have a time machine sitting right here. Mm. You can go back in time to any point and have lunch with anybody in history, who would it be and why? Um, I would choose Queen Victoria. And I would choose her for a number of reasons. First, I, I think her life is compelling. Her life story is compelling. Uh, but I think that she... I'm most attracted to her life because she was so young when she became queen and people underestimated her. You're young, you're a female, you can't rule this country. You can't make decisions. You can't, I mean, you've been, you've been taught, you've been, you're very learned, but yeah, we're not, we're going to, you know, cast you aside and we're going to run this for ourselves. And she really had to step up and step in to the destiny of her life. And then she becomes a mother and she's pregnant and she's queen. I mean, at every turn, Queen Victoria is turning people's expectations on their heads. And she was incredibly bright and incredibly knowledgeable, even though she hadn't traveled as a young child. I mean, she was being protected and, and all of that. But later in her life, um, what she understood about the world, I just think she's, she was well a woman beyond her time. And I just respect her so much as a historical figure, as, as a young woman having to take on that kind of responsibility. And there's such parallel with Queen Elizabeth, too, right. who I also admire tremendously when you think about everything that she has lived through. So I would say Queen Victoria. She's my pick. So you're sitting there having your first cup of coffee with your choice of Queen Victoria. What's your first question? What's your biggest regret? Mm. Mm. Because there's no way that you can become who she became and not sacrifice something. Was it love? Did she did she not pursue a love? I think that actually might have been her situation. Right. Did she regret not experiencing more of the world than she did? I would want to know what her biggest regret was. Great question. Christine Maston, what is something about you that would surprise us? I haven't surprised you yet. <laughs> what is something <laughs> else about you? Me. <laughs> um, I didn't learn to swim until I was 19 years old. What? 
And you, you grew up, where did you grow up? I know. Southern California. I grew, yeah. Well, I grew up in California. Yeah. And when I was um, probably five, almost six years old, I fell into a neighbor's pool. And I almost drowned. And I remember to this day, I mean, if I close my eyes, I can see it. I can see the stairs. And I can see the bottom of the pool. And I can see the filter. Wow. So vividly. Wow. And our neighbor's dad pulled me out of the pool. But from that day forward, I was very afraid of the water and afraid to swim. And my mom tried to put me in swim lessons and all of this. And it just did not, it did not work out. Um, when I went to college, I had been competing. I was on the cycling team. I was a good runner, uh, but I didn't want to do a triathlon because it meant I'd have to swim. <laughs> and there's no way I was going to do that. Right. But I got so sick of not being able to participate with my friends that I finally said, okay, this is it. And so I showed up at the age of 19 to a master's swim program workout. And I explained to the coach my whole situation. And he said, come show up this weekend at 8am on Saturday and I'll work with you. Well, it turns out it was the senior citizen hour. (laughs) Their, their lap swim. I wanted to die. I just thought to myself, really? So, and these women, I mean, these women, definitely 65 70 and above shredded I mean they were swimming so I was very intimidated and I got into the slow lane and he worked with me I didn't even want to put my face in the water um a year later I was one of um the better long distance swimmers and so I would swim lakes ocean whatever and I I could do it and so um and now I'm just a few courses away from being a, a rescue diver getting my patty certification so for me it was facing a fear but also being able to engage in life because at at that point I was like this is silly like I've got to I've got to do this that takes an incredible strength and endurance so who early on in your life um gave you that gift because that's one example we've heard a few examples throughout um, our time today but um who who was your first mentor in that who was it your grandmother, your mm. grandfather, your, your school I, I was blessed to have two very strong grandmothers. And uh, one grandmother was American and had lived through World War II and raised five kids and lived that whole experience and then traveled the world with my grandfather. And she was just so rich in life and rich in experience. And that definitely came to me. My other grandmother was from Chile and had lived a a difficult life. Um, She had a third grade education, came to the United States after her husband died, my my biological grandfather, had to come to America, new language, new place, new things. Um, She provided a lot of care for my brother and I as I was growing up. Um, But she had such joy of life such joy of life she was never a bellyacher she'd never be the one to be like oh look at how I've suffered or you know that's just it wasn't her style and she just kept going and I think that having both of those women impact me um, I definitely I definitely see their their traits in some of the crazy things that that we've done but I think one of the most important things my grandmother um, said, said to me was, you, you, you have to figure out how you want to spend your life. You only get a limited amount. So you have to figure out what's worthwhile 
and spend your life on that. Mm. And that was a crucial conversation when we adopted. I, I could think of no better way to spend my life than raising my babies. Uh, what is something you feel most grateful for in your life? I am most grateful for two things, actually. Time and opportunity. And I think the older we get, like I think about the women that I've known and known of that have not, that were not gifted 48 years. And so I feel like that's a huge gift. Like I've been afforded time. Um, and then there's opportunity. Like I feel like doors have opened for me and it's such a thrill and it's so fun to walk through them. But those doors have to be open. And I'm thankful that I'm married to someone who wants those doors to open for me. And he's, and he's such a supporter as I walk through them or we walk through them together. Um, so I'm most grateful for that because that makes life fun and interesting and exciting. You know, when you're te- teetering on the edge of like complete failure and complete excitement. <laughs> No that's, idea. That's just a, talking about. that's just a fun place to be. That's when I feel most alive, actually. I could say a lot of things, but I'll just say that's inspiring to hear. It is. Thanks for everything you've shared. I I think I'm out of questions, but you've got one. The she final always one? has one. The big one. Uh oh. <gasps> what do you want to throw just over the fence? Mmm piece of wisdom, advice. Something you wish people knew. That it's worth it to seek clarity in your life. To really take time apart from your daily life. To pray, to think, and to find some kind of clarity. Like what's important to you? How do you want to spend your time? It's limited. And we don't know how short or long our lives will be, but time is limited. And so where are you spending your time? How are you spending your time? Who are you spending, not just for yourself, but who are you spending your time for? Like, what is it that you think about? What is it that you prioritize in your life? Why? Why is that such a priority in your life? And just ask those tough questions um, sooner rather than later. And I think naturally as we grow older, we tend to have more of those conversations with ourselves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I really wish I had taken the time in my mid-20s, early 20s, to have those conversations with myself Um, and, and really seek that clarity and purpose at a younger age. Christine Maston. Another incredible friend. And conversation. A lot of wisdom in there. And I, I uh, am going to carry forward that thought of the time in your life is finite. And how do you want to spend it? Right. What do you want to think about? What do you want to do? Right. Which automatically reminds me that whatever I'm worrying about today is usually of very little consequence. Right. Unless, you know, it's something I've asked you to. In which case, it's very high priority. It's very high priority. That's true. Yeah. Just the wisdom that she passed on from her, both of her grandparents, mm-hmm. very different in many respects, but embedded in her a lot of the same strengths and endurance and um, 
open heart to possibilities. Like you can do whatever you want. I had that mm-hmm. in my parents. Yeah. They, um, they made me <laughs> grow up thinking <laughs> I, that as it's good and it's bad, but <laughs> thinking I can do and be and uh, uh, take charge of whatever I want. Here's a little, here's a little secret podcast production secret. So we just uh, went to the upper level of the world headquarters to <laughs> see Christine off. And then uh, Keith brought by a few extra treats for the Wheeze family. They're going to think, our listeners are going to think that's all we ever do. <laughs> it is pretty much all I ever do is eat cake. But have your cake and eat it too. I just eat it. Let her eat cake. Let her eat cake. You can see what Keith's up to on her Facebook page. It's me, Keith. Thank you, Keith. Yes. Thank you, Keith. Harry, next month on this podcast, it's like, this is so cool because we get to continue welcoming friends with a, that have so much to share. And yeah. next month is a woman who, who we met from a distance and, and you wanted to have a chance to spend more time with her. I asked God for Windy Oaks, and he gave her to me, very tangibly. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to a large church at the time in our area. We had just gotten here, and someone had recommended it, and it was awesome, and uh, Matt was drawn to the music. We are a diverse family, if you haven't figured that out. And uh, so we walked away that day thinking, yes, this is it. And the person who did the liturgy uh, for that service, it was Wendy Oaks. And I said a little prayer, one of those little ones that you just throw up as you're walking around or driving around or sitting in a brand new church and said, God, I know everybody probably wants her because she was the women's director of a very large church, Greenwood Community Church, about 2,500 members at the time. But could I have her? (laughs) And he said yes. And he said, yes, she definitely, definitely has the art of joy, joy, no matter what joy in the midst, joy, no matter what throughout life. So we get to explore the art of joy. Well, I'm sure thankful to get to do this with you, Harry. It's fun. Christine said I sounded like Barry White. Mm -hmm. I knew you were going to mention that. I'm trying, (laughs) I'm trying right now to not, not talk like that. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll talk a little higher. How's this? Matt. Stop it. You just wanted to, you know. All right. Yeah. I guess I'll. Yes, you have a radio voice. I guess we'll look forward to next month. Matt, stop it. I do like Barry White, though. (laughs) I do like you, too, so. Well, thank you. (laughs) Friends, make it a great month. See you next month. Just over the fence.